where the sun burns gold and the wind blows colder. A visitor has come, but not by herself. Started. Come on! The suspense is back. Do we have no weapons of any kind? The fear is back. No! Don't look back, dude! Run as fast as you can! And most of all, the bitch is back. <laughs> Alien 3. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast that covers every horror movie franchise, one movie, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and back again this week, feeling healthy and relaxed and all the fresher right now, we have my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are you feeling tonight? I'm feeling a lot better. At first, mm-hmm. I, I didn't realize you said healthy. I thought you said healthy. And I was thinking, like, is that it works. slang? Because I like that. I am feeling It healthy. works. Yeah, we'll, t- uh, we'll but, take yeah, it. It works. I'm, I'm so excited to be back. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I hate missing episodes. Uh, but that being said, the first episode for Alien 3 was great. So props to all you guys. Thank you. And joining us again um, from Gaily Dreadful, we have Terry Misnard. Terry, how are we? Oh, you know, um, it's been quite a week. Uh, So, I mean, all things considered, I'm doing pretty good. Excellent. Hey, how um, has the first week of the Project Trevor fundraising going? Man, uh, I am. The response to the Trevor Project has been uh, amazing. I when I, when I was originally setting up the the fundraiser this year, I had thought about raise, trying to set a goal for four thousand, and I was like, "Ah, oh, that might be too much." So I'm going to set it for three. And within like the first three days, uh, <laughs> they, they just blew it away, and we're now almost at four thousand dollars at the very end of the first week. So that's, that's incredible. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. It's it's very humbling and pretty emotional. Um, I'm really happy, and I think this kind of goes to prove what the horror community can do. Uh, in times of need between this and all of the uh, other fundraisers that are going on for the Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. everything. It's it's pretty awe-inspiring. And your site's been hosting a different writer, a different member of the LGBTQ horror community uh, each day through the month of June. I think you mentioned you had somewhere around 40 pieces maybe lined up by the end of the month. Yeah, I think I think we're sitting at 45 uh, pieces. Um, and they're, they're so they're so diverse um in in content we've we've had an interview with jeffrey reddick um the the writer of um, Fondless nation um we have a couple articles that are going to be unpacking the queerness in it chapter two um just like we have one on race and horror and cinema it's just it's been it's been amazing to see and uh i think next week we're going to be hosting um, maybe more than one a day because of submissions excellent thank you and also joining us um once again, from Daily, uh, 
oh my goodness, I'm drawing a blank right now, from Dread Central, from Bloody Disgusting, and the author of the upcoming Complete Guide to the Puppet Master series, we have Nat Bremar. Hello. How are you feeling, my man? I'm doing, I'm doing all right, you know. These, does, these are times we live these, in. These are times. You know, I mean, these are 2020 or definitely the times when we're going to look back, they're going to be teaching this in history, like 20 years, pretty... Mm-hmm. It's pretty wild. Um, mm-hmm. How did the hurricane go for you? Like you were getting about about to get like slammed down by a pretty big tropical storm. It looked like as well. Uh, there were uh, tornadoes in Orlando last night for the uh, first time since I've lived here. Wow, that's horrifying. Yeah, it was uh, surprising. Do you ever? I got a quick question. This is probably a stupid question, but do you ever get like just dumb assholes who know nothing about tornadoes but have seen Twister? try to use like terminology from that movie to like ask you about them? Well, see, I never thought I'd have to think about tornadoes that much. <laughs> oh, that's true. I certainly never expected that. <laughs> I can just imagine some dudes like, yeah, man, well, I don't know, was it an F5? It's like, dude, shut up. <laughs> yeah. I'm just amazed that I wasn't the one going around being like, we got cows. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> oh, boy. So Alien Three. So Alien Three. So last week we, last week we dove um, pretty deep into the making of the movie and all the behind the scenes shenanigans. So tonight we're going to stick mostly to the movie itself. But Jerry, you um, just sent over before we someone getting out of a coffin back there, man. That was awesome. Like we have. I, know, that was, uh, in the back. I had to let my cat out real quick. Okay. <laughs> just out of the Dracula coffin. With his coffin. <laughs> Oh man! He's like blah, blah. Excellent. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, go ahead. So you had um, sent over an article just before we were about to record um, that I thought was fascinating. It was from I think it was oh god, Ralph Brown. Ralph Brown, thank you. Talking yeah. about his treatment on the set and how his character changed. Um, what in particular did you want to highlight from that? Because I remember okay. reading this a couple weeks ago. No, totally. Really I've, I've always loved this because Ralph Brown, who played Aaron in Alien 3 as the kind of dim-witted guy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he signed up for a very different movie, which, I mean, to be honest, every single person involved did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and he signed up and the character of Aaron was just kind of, kind of supposed to be kind of this yuppie-ish you know, sleazy kind of like losery guy that ends up redeeming himself and lives at the end by helping everyone. So he gets on set, you know, and David Fincher champions the way, champions the character of Aaron the way it was written. And almost immediately, (laughs) this poor dude, Ralph Brown, and he's so candid in his journals about it. Like he keeps getting rewrite after rewrite to where like his character dies five different ways over the course of filming. (laughs) And this guy, like, he he kind of talked to Fincher about it and Fincher's like, well, yeah, you should talk to Walter Hill and, you know, Dave Geiler about it and all this stuff. And they have a meeting. He has a meeting with them just to say that, hey, this character, Aaron, that I signed up for is very different than the way that he's getting rewritten every single day. And they basically said, yeah, but he want, we want him kind of be a moron now. and We're going to call him 85 as a nickname because that's his IQ. And plus, Sigourney doesn't really like you much, the character. <laughs> And, and they tell him straight up, don't be a Veronica Cartwright. Because I guess her role got reduced really, like, a lot because of speaking up, too. So this guy is like, whoa, I don't want to rock the boat because I'm in Alien 3. But at the same time, I have no idea who I'm even playing at this part. 
And they, they reduced his role so much that like it became like a Guiler and Heel versus Fincher and Fox kind of thing. And you, you could see it in the movie, definitely. Uh, you know, like I think the version of the film we're going to talk about today is the, uh, it's not the work print cut. I forgot the name of it. The assembly cut? The assembly cut. And it's it's very different. It's it's a very different movie, and I could totally understand where Ralph Brown's coming from because he has this he has this meeting with these guys, and they're basically like, "Yeah, your character now has an 85 IQ. We're gonna kind of call him 85, and basically he's just there to serve, you know, whatever." And then <laughs> Sigourney Weaver basically like just terrorizes this poor guy during the whole filming. Yeah, like like she would be like, "Oh, your hair's." a little too longer. Maybe we should put those fake lice on your head. Or, oh, why is he so clean? And she terrorized him to the point where, like, at the premiere, she goes out of her way to apologize for the awful way she treated him. And I think that's a good way to jump into Alien 3. It's like, the film, as much as I love it, I mean, I love Alien 3 so much. Mm -hmm. As much as I love it, you can tell there's a clashing nonstop from the studio and David Fincher and everyone else and that it shows in the actual film. Yeah, absolutely. And it felt like they did this to Ralph just out of spite. Like they kind of did it just to show David Fincher that they could. Mm -hmm. Like there was no narrative reason to dumb the character down. There was no narrative. It didn't really serve the story in any way, shape or form. Um, It was just at this point to show um, Fincher that like, hey, we're the ones in charge right here at this point. And he was caught in the middle. No, totally. And it's interesting because after Ralph Brown came back from that awful meeting with, with uh, you know, Walter Hill and Geiler, uh, Fincher was basically like, so how's it going? I, I heard you guys reached an understanding. And Ralph Brown's like, wait, what? What? Understanding? Yeah, I sold you out. <laughs> and, then, and then Fincher's like, well, I mean, just remember, we're basically working with 18th century Fox right now. <laughs> <laughs> and what's funny is Ralph Brown posted this in that same journal. That in the inside at Pinewood Studios 5, the stage where they made this movie, cards into the wall, someone wrote the five or the six stages of film production there. One is wild enthusiasm. Two is disillusionment. <laughs> three, three is panic. Four is search for the guilty. Five is punish the innocent. And six is reward the non-involved. And can you imagine being an actor walking into that, seeing that cards on the wall, and going through this this production of not even knowing who your character is, it must have been not only confusing to Ralph Brown, but even Fincher as a first-time feature director, you know? It, it sometimes feels like watching this movie and seeing this really dystopian future that the producers decide to have everybody go full method, but not tell them about it by just making it as miserable a production yeah. as possible. <laughs> Yeah, for no. everybody involved. I was thinking that it's literally like, oh, you know, we're you know, we got great, you know, working actors who are going to show up and get say their lines in good performance, but we're forcing them to go method anyway because we're turning our set into a prison. It was awful. Yeah, just awful conditions overall. Um, so I guess I want to start by talking with talking about the movie is really the choice that was made and that plays out in the opening credits of Aliens Ends, you have this new nuclear family of Hicks, of Newt, and of Ripley. And the credits roll on Aliens 3, um, you immediately kill off two of your three protagonists. While they're and I asleep. love it so much. Yep. Oh, me too. Me yep. too. It's like, 
you know, you, you end aliens with this idea, like you mentioned, of this nuclear family and they're going to, you know, go back to Earth and they're wherever they're going to live happily ever after. And we're now in the 90s and it's like, no, fuck that. Uh, every, everyone that you love is dead and not only are they dead, but we are going to have this brutal autopsy to cut open the one girl. And like, we're just going to like hack through her chest. There's going to be blood everywhere and it's going to be disgusting. We are destroying any hope for a happy ending right here in the well, even they even stripped down the character of Ripley, even in more of a, a physical sense. I mean, with the hair and everything else. Oh yeah, they're they're tearing away that that you know quote unquote nuclear family that she had or she found, but they're and also the hero's taking journey. exactly, and they're taking everything away from this character. And that's one of the reasons that I've always found this film to be so enthralling, yeah. is it, it takes everything, like you said, everything you love is now destroyed basically, you know? And it's it's such an, a unique and interesting way to take a series. Yeah. Well, the other thing I really liked about this opening is the way it kind of subverts aliens because in aliens, you know, she has, she wakes up in the infirmary and she has the dream where she's impregnated. Well, in this movie, she's in the infirmary, she wakes up and she actually is impregnated. So it's, it's like even an F you to the kind of fake out mm-hmm. in aliens. It's mm-hmm. a completely different type of story. Yeah. What do you what do you guys think about the differences between the theatrical and the assembly cut of the are, are you guys familiar with like the differences? I did not watch the theatrical in preparation for the show. I stuck to the assembly cut and then um the documentaries. Well there's I mean there's there's so much different between uh differences between the two, you know, even the way that Ripley's found, you know. That's like, the one I do remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, in one of the cuts, I think it's a theatrical, it's when they kind of just find her in the actual the, the thing, you know, like where she was. Yeah. And as the other cut, she's kind of like mysteriously washed up on, you know, the shores. I love and the it, image it, of finding her like muddy and you yeah. know, broken on the beach and she looks dead already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think visually, I think that's the thing that stands out so much to me about the assembly cut. And I, that's why I prefer that cut is that visually you get more of a David Fincher movie than the theatrical cut. You know, there, there are traces of the David Fincher that we would end up, you know, recognizing. He has his own unique stamp on his films. And I think that the assembly cut of finding Ripley that way, it, it's, it's almost poetic. And I, it's so visually striking, but it's, it's just such an interesting, sorry, excuse me, such an interesting way to start the film, I think. Mm-hmm. Nat, you yeah. had started to say why you loved this narrative choice. And I don't think we quite got to that. So tell us why that works for you. I think the decision to kill Newt and Hicks uh, works really, really well for both structural and for thematic reasons. Like it works structurally because again, I think, like I said last time, a big problem was a lot of uh, the previous scripts was that they tried to go bigger and go bigger than aliens. And I don't think you can go bigger than aliens, but I also think that with the the roots in in horror that this franchise has um things had the the victory was so by and large clean in aliens that i felt like and it's a testament to the strengths of those characters for sure that you felt like those characters could go through anything together like you felt Mm -hmm. the three of them could face down any threat that came their way after that like they took out the hive they killed the queen they can face anything. And if you put Ripley on her own again, and, uh, especially with just the bluntness of that loss, it's a completely different dynamic. And it, 
you know, sets up immediately that this is a film about death and about accepting one's own death and about the, the extremely harsh realities of loss. Thematically, it definitely works. Like, it's hard for me because I think you like the character of Hicks so much. Um, I'm a father of a 10-year-old girl, so I'm always for the killing of 10-year-olds on screen, <laughs> just to live vicariously a little bit. No, but I mean, it's definitely... <laughs> Happy birthday, Ada. We love you. Um, but he, so now that I've lost track of thought, um, it's definitely works thematically for what Fincher is trying to tell. And that, to your point, um, it's very much a movie about Ripley accepting her own mortality, uh, accepting her own destiny here, and asking the question of, at the end of the day, like, how do we face death? Do we face it on our own or do we kind of face it together? And I think it's very much in the direction of like, death is something that even if you're surrounded by loved ones, you very much face it on your own and you have to come to grips with it on your own terms. So in that regard, it works very well. Um, and then it's a very, there's just so much Christian imagery in this movie. Uh, we talked about Ripley being washed up on the shore, but Charles Dance's character, Clemens, picking her up and carrying her in, like very much invokes like the stations of the cross and Jesus being removed and being led um, into the tomb. Um, just that's all over. It's all over this, this, this movie. Like both. Well, even, even in Ripley's sacrifice, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Christ-like imagery of her just falling with her arms extended, you know, and, and I, I also love the fact that they took out the chest burster in the assembly cut, because mm-hmm. that was something that was added during reshoots for the theatrical. Right. I, 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 you know, me personally, I don't need that extra little like zinger at the end of the alien, mm-hmm. you know, the chest burster popping out. I, and speaking on what you said about mortality and facing it on your own and that kind of stuff, you know, I, I, what I love about this film and which is weird is kind of, I loved this when I was 11 seeing it in the theater, which maybe I was way too young to think these things, but like, I, I liked the idea of knowing that you're in over your head and you're not going to make it out of this and everything that you think could happen to you is going to happen to you. But what, how do you react to that? You know, what do you do? Do you go down, you know, do you go down fighting? Do you, do you take ownership of, of your destiny and, and what you do or do you succumb to it? And I, I think that Ripley sacrificing herself at the end is such a noble act that like, I, I feel like it was the perfect way to say goodbye to that character. Mm-hmm. I actually do like the chestburster shot too, specifically because like, I, I like, even though it is an insert, it is just a little, little gag, a little pop. I like that, considering that that is the thing the company wants, I like that they have to watch it burn. Oh, yeah. See, that's good. That And the fact that I feel like they kind of used uh, her connection with Bishop against her. Mm-hmm. You know, like like having like yet another Bishop that, you know, pretending that he's actually the dude that created him kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like like it shows, I mean, Wayland Yutani, like that company, like they're so manipulative through the whole series. And it's just like, as, as someone who watched their manipulation in the first film and the second film, like the third one, it's the biggest middle finger to those guys. Not only crack him in the head with a pipe, <laughs> yep. but like, you know, like, here's your alien that you want so bad. And guess what? You know, I'm going out and I'm taking this fool with me. Why did I say fool? <laughs> Jesus. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm taking this thing with me. Yeah. Yeah. Like I love it. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that that is a key 
key thing about this movie and why it works so well as a trilogy closer is that it it brings that whole arc from the first film uh, of the Wayland Utani Corporation to a close because to you know you can't beat the company but you can let them know that they don't own you and mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's what Ripley does in a, a really powerful way. You know, Luke Terry, you first, my friend. You know how um, we, we've been talking kind of about the thematic uh, ties with this movie, and that you talked about the kind of like ever presence of death and 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 the kind of standing up to it. Um, I actually would take this a little further because back in in the eighties, uh, there was um, the establishment of ACT UP, which is this kind of it was a it was a gay group that stood up. Um, Five years it formed five years before Alien Three was released, and it was a bunch of um, gay people in New York that started to fight back about the the fact that no one would want to say the AIDS uh, plague. And so Larry Kramer, in his speech, was very uh, a car driving by. Um, he had he's he's kind of he was kind of a firebrand, rest in peace. Um, but in his speech in New York, he says. If my speech tonight doesn't scare the shit out of you, we're in real trouble. If what you're hearing doesn't rouse you to anger, fury, rage, and action, gay men will have no future on this earth. How long does it take before you get angry and fight back? And this speech reminded me so much of the speech that Dylan, Charles S. Dutton, get towards the end of, of Alien 3, where he says, we're all going to die. The only question is how you check out. Do you want to go on your feet or on your fucking knees begging? I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing. So I say, fuck that thing. Let's fight it. We're all going to die. The only question is when. This is as good a place as any to take your first steps to heaven. The only question is how you check out. Do you want it on your feet or on your fucking knees? Begging. I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing. So I say, fuck that thing. Let's fight it. And there's a spirit in 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 Dylan's character that, for me, speaks so much to what Larry Kramer was trying to do with the start of of Act Up. And I think that, in a way, Alien Three is kind of a metaphor for the for the AIDS crisis. You, you look at the fact that everyone in this in this penal colony is men. They're shaved. Uh, they're bald heads. They look sickly. Um, she is dying from a wasting disease of sorts that she knows she has no way of, of combating that it's going to, she's pretty much fucked. And yet she still tries. And it's because of, you know, there's one part where she's even going to give up and, you know, wants Dylan to kill her. And she's, and he's like, no sister, we can't do that. We have, there's so much more to do. And it just kind of speaks to the feeling that a lot of um, gay people felt in the eighties when they were being ignored by in the company, quote unquote, the government, and they weren't doing anything to save them. And, you know, she even says plenty of times that the company doesn't care about that. They don't care about you there. And it's, it's this striking metaphor watching it now years later that I never really picked up um, back in. Holy crap. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, so 
dead this on is, and so obvious that I can't believe I never noticed that. I, so this is the story of how Dylan, Dylan created the Fury chapter of ACT UP. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, that's, it's great. And, you know, to be honest, it's so wonderful to hear things like that. Because, I mean, these are movies that we all either grew up loving or that we appreciated later on in life that we just loved on the surface. And to hear stuff like that from yourself and to hear stuff like that, it, it allows us to look at these films in a different light. And it makes those films even more important to people. And I, I cannot tell you enough that I, I appreciate you giving us that take because it, it, it's making me kind of see this film in a different way too. I think that's, that's great. Well, I just think in a lot of ways it speaks to the thematic resonance of horror that it's a genre that is just so rich and so filled with metaphor that we're able through our own experiences and through our own lenses able to frame the same story in different ways and none of those ways are necessarily 100 percent correct but none of those ways of framing it are wrong as well like it really you can shape your own personal narrative around the same movie that mm-hmm. No, no, most definitely. I mean, it could also be said a lot of what this week, you know, like, you know, uh, there comes a time where you have to face what's going on and say, this isn't right, that people need to be heard, people need to be understood. And, you know, we, we've been silent long enough. And it's, it's crazy that we're talking about Alien 3 and all these things. But I mean, to be honest, you know, it sounds like they've been there the whole time, you know, like, and I, I love that about movies. I love I love being able to kind of see them in a different light over different times of your life, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think this is great. I'm literally reading the transcript of that speech now, and it is, it is identical to Dylan's. Yeah, yeah it, it, there's so much that, y- even if the words are different, there's so much intent behind it that just... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just like I, I was because I mean, and I was I, I was thinking about it because, you know, Larry Kramer passed away his career because he's a firebrand. He he some of his speeches up on that are up on YouTube are just so powerful and scathing mm-hmm. about the apathy either towards um, the government or towards people in the, in the gay community that just wanted to just ignore it. And I think you see that a lot in some of the characters here where they're just like, oh, well, we're going to wait for, you know, people to come save it. Or, I, you know, I'm, you know, I know this is a danger, but we're just going to kind of try to ignore it for now. We're going to try to, and even in the assembly cut, we're going to just lock it up and forget about it. You know, it, it's, there's, there's all these little tiny things that just kind of speaks to the way um, the government in the 80s fucked up with with the AIDS uh, pandemic and even the image at the very end where the people are coming in and they're wearing fucking hazmat suits mm-hmm. like that's how doctors treated gay patients at the time when they were dealing with AIDS was was coming in with complete and utter hazmat suits because they were afraid of catching it mm-hmm. so it's just there's just a lot in here and it was it was quite a, a different experience because I haven't seen this movie. I don't think I've seen this movie since the nineties. Um, and I had never seen the assembly cut. Um, so watching it again and especially around pride and with the, the events of that, that happened with, with Larry's death, it just, it was kind of an emotional watch for me this time to be perfectly honest. Well, I mean, rightfully so, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I also think that like, and, and this does, I think this does come into play with what, what you're talking about. Uh, I think the differences between the theatrical cut and the assembly cut speaks volumes on a, a lot of that kind of stuff. You know, in the theatrical in the theatrical cut, what we got is a lot of trimming of what makes the people who they are. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like there's really not much to many of the characters in the theatrical cut as much as I love it. Mm-hmm. The assembly cut, it flushes out these characters to where you you kind of know what's making them tick. You kind of know what they're about. You kind of know more about these people. And it adds it adds a personality to these these faces that you really don't know in the theatrical cut. You know, and, and I, I think that that kind of speaks on on a lot of things. You know, and maybe it wasn't like a, a, a conscious decision, but watching the assembly cut, I mean, watching the assembly cut, like, recently, like, it's the first, I mean, that's the first time I had seen the assembly cut, to be honest. Like, I grew up only knowing the theatrical cut. Mm-hmm. And there's so many characters that you get to know in in the assembly cut more. Mm-hmm. I mean, the character of Gallic, you know, who's kind of just there a little bit in the theatrical <laughs> he cut. He just like, kind of vashes in the theatrical yeah, cut? Yeah, he just goes away. Like he's so fleshed out in this one. And, and I think the characters in general, when you have a film that is obviously kind of rich in themes and metaphors, you need to know the people that you're following. You need to know like their fight. You need to know what's making them tick, what, what brings them into this battle, you know? And, and I, I really appreciate the assembly cut for doing that. I think one of the things where Alien 3 suffers a little bit is the overall character development. Part of it is the design of the movie where it's all male. It is, everyone has a shaved head. Everyone has a barcode on their head. So, I mean, assembly cut kind of fits. Like it's an assembly line of persons. Um, Watching Alien, watching Aliens, and then watching Alien 3 kind of back to back to back. um, What struck me was even with Aliens where you have basically a group of like infantrymen overall infantry persons Cameron did enough to slow the movie down and give each individual a chance to shine there where you could pick up the difference between them overall and they all had their own trait going so far in the production to allow them to kind of personalize their uniforms and come up with their own backstories here and maybe it's again everyone has a British accent and it's all dudes it is really hard to tell the difference between the group of prisoners. So a lot of times that you'll we'll talk about Gallic versus Ralph versus others, like I cannot for the life of me separate. I just think that's, I mean, to some degree that's character development. I think that's more white people face blindness, which is perfectly fine. It's perfectly <laughs> allowed. <laughs> well, I, I think that they, like the intent was to kind of like, the intention was kind of like to strip them away of personality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that could be a good thing and a bad thing for the story, mm-hmm. you know, like they're, they're supposed to look the same. And in the assembly cut, we kind of, in the theatrical cut, we kind of hear that, hey, it's maybe because of lice. Like it's kind of a throwaway line. Right. Mm-hmm. In the assembly cut, we definitely know it's some crazy looking lice. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh my God. It, it does. It's not. It's but gnarly. It, but it does become a cast of red shirt. In a certain oh, way. no, no. I, I agree 100%. I, I think that that was kind of their intention, though. But to be honest, like, I'm right there with you. Sometimes you kind of forget, like, which character you're following. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, 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 completely, I completely agree. I think that it is really difficult sometimes to tell them apart, um, particularly some of the, the characters that don't get as much screen time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also feel like looking at it, at it now, I, it, was, it was sort of like watching that they're just, they're all, in the whole, I'm having a hard time trying to come up with my thoughts. In the whole game of things, they are nothing more than just, you know, cattle to the company. Mm-hmm. And in a way, the movie sort of leans into that by just presenting kind of the same person over and over again that is just constantly being 
killed for fate, basically. Yeah, I think a difference for me is also that, like, uh, while Ripley's always obviously the protagonist, I think the first two were much more ensemble movies, Mm -hmm. whereas Mm -hmm. I think this this movie is very much more of a character piece for her than even the first two were. Uh, Absolutely. I think... Aliens event, Alien eventually becomes Ripley's movie, but you're conditioned just from the way we watch movies to, I think, believe that John Hurt is going to be the main character of Alien just because he's the first character that we see uh, in the movie. He's the first one coming out of the stasis pod and the way, you know, when he's in his big adult diaper, how the camera kind of focuses on him. Um, and then Aliens is very much an ensemble piece that as the cast is whittled down, becomes Whitley, uh, Whit Ripley dealing with her trauma and overcoming uh, the queen. And it becomes a mother versus mother story where this from the get-go, although she does disappear for stretches of time, I don't think you ever forget that this is very much her move. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, 100%. And it, it even goes as far as the marketing. Like, you know, the poster for Alien is kind of, you know, ambiguous. You don't really know what's going on. It's mm-hmm. an egg. You know, mm-hmm. the poster for Alien, it's an egg opening. You know, Alien 3, if you look at that VHS cover, it's just Sigourney Weaver just standing there bald. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> like, there's no question about what Alien 3 is. Right. And I, I think they knew that. And I think even going into Ralph Brown's journal thing again, like, I think it was very clear from the beginning that the only person that, you know, Walter Hill you know, David Geiler and kind of Fox cared about in this movie was the character of Ripley and was Sigourney Weaver. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they're the company. <laughs> yeah. yeah no, in most a lot of definitely. ways, absolutely. And it's hilarious with how many drafts didn't even have her the fuck in it. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. And Geiler originally was like, well, women aren't coming to this movie anyway, so why do we even need to have a, a lead female? Fuck that, dude. Mm-hmm. He's, I mean, you- I know he's 90 now, but I'd probably still... <laughs> punch them in the right in the do you kidneys. guys remember a few years ago when uh oh god what is that director's name district nine neil Blomkamp. Mm-hmm. yeah do you remember when he wanted to pitch an alien film that would kind of like erase alien 3 on and bring back hicks and newt and stuff mm-hmm. oh yeah dude yeah, this still is talking this about is, that until like last year no but this is funny i interviewed michael bean for like i think the third or fourth time for icons of fright like years ago and he wasn't supposed to talk about that. <laughs> and he, oh. he, he went into detail without me even asking <laughs> about what the, what the whole like pitch was, visual thing. And like, like, and it, that interview blew up so big that like every site ran it. And Michael Bean and all these people, his wife especially came after me saying he was misquoted to the point <laughs> like I had to, I had to threaten to post the audio for them to be like, oh wait, man, I'm sorry. You know, but like, (laughs) but the idea, like, it is kind of the business. It is the kind of company. Because what happens is you get a film like Alien 3 that is so ballsy and is so not brave. Because what they're doing is not brave, you know? But like, you know what I mean? So ballsy that like they would take those characters and kill them off. And people don't respond to it well (coughs) because it's not safe. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they try to kind of rectify it based on what fans want. And I feel like that's a dangerous thing to do, even with Alien Resurrection. This Alien 3 is the perfect way to tie up that trilogy, Mm kind of like what Nat said. Perfect way. And people are upset. And how do they respond to that? We're bringing Ripley back. She's a clone in the fourth one. You know, like, like, 
I feel like this movie, like it's it's such a good way to close out a really tight story. It is. And you know, it makes sense, especially given the world of alien. Because outside of aliens, I can I guess resurrection, out of your six core movies, four of them have pretty bleak ending, I would say. Mm-hmm. I would say that overall, like they're they tend to be a bit nihilistic, even if there is hope at the end of the movie, like say the end of Alien or the end of Prometheus, um, it's tinged with a lot of nihilism. Um, and I would say like th- this trilogy is a very existential trilogy where each movie, especially this one, is asking why do we exist? What are, where is our place in the universe? And what is our overall purpose overall? Like it asks these big existential questions and in the case of alien three it wraps them in the framework of religion as well where you have charles dutton's dylan character leading this group of outcasts this group of villains this group of criminals that have banded together and it's interesting because they're facing their first test like they're all saying well you know we are completely forsaking the pleasures of the work going completely celibate that's a very easy thing to do if you're heterosexual and there is no temptation around. But it, it, I think you see very quickly, as soon as Ripley is dropped into the mix, within a day of her being on there, she's sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. oh, I was just going to wait for someone else to chime in. <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I agree 100%. And like, it's, it's, <sighs> see, I don't even know what to say about that because like, it, I think it speaks volumes on humanity. I think it speaks volumes on uh, these awful things that a lot of people do, you know? And, and I, you know, you, you talked about how most of them had this bleak ending. I mean, even Prometheus with its, with its seemingly hopeful ending, it seems like the overall mission of these movies is to kind of lift you up at the end on some of them and then destroy you the next go around. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's that bridge material, whether it's like the short films or even like the actual plans for Covenant that dealt with what happened after Prometheus. And it's horrific stuff that happened to the lead character. You know? I mean, what when it comes to Alien 3, like I, I just find it, especially in Rewatch, I, I find it so unique that all these people know that it's probably not going to work out for them. You know, these are people who are going to be in there for the rest of their life, pretty much. And this thing's killing them off one by one. And, you know, and, and Dutton's uh, speech as Dylan, it's so just motivating and uplifting that these people know, these people who, to be honest, a lot of them are really horrific and just mm-hmm. awful people. You know, these are the kind of people that, yeah, a woman goes on your planet and what, the first thing you do, the first thing you try to do is rape her. Like, that's despicable. That's disgusting. You know? And But all these people, they know that they're in over their head. They know they're probably going to die, that this company doesn't give a fuck about any of them, but they're going to go down fighting. And I think that speaks on, like, humanity as a whole. You know, there are so many awful people out there, and they're usually the loudest people, you know? Mm-hmm. But I, I think that people are inherently good, you know? And, and I, I think Alien 3, as nihilistic as it can be and somewhat very cynical, I think there are, like, like just a little glimmer of hope that I, I've always loved about the movie. Yeah. I would, just, I would say there's a glimmer of hope overall, but I find overall, this is a really dark series. The oh yeah. It's certainly really the darkest dark entry. Yeah. Um, 
What do we make of, of Dutton's character of Dylan overall? Because I find him, he's set up almost as a sort of secondary hero in the movie overall. And to your point, Terry, like he comes across very much like the firebrand and the leader. Um, but he also seeks to undercut Ripley at every given moment, even denying her her sacrifice at the end when it is the three of them in the um, way of the molten pit. He pushes her out of it to confront the alien on his own after he had promised her, like, once it's dealt with, um, you're free to die. He robs her of I think it's interesting because I think it could be taken two ways. And I, I think my opinion on it kind of changes from time to time, you know, watching it. And on one hand, it could be seen as something heroic. He wants to save her. But at the same time, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to make this like an anti-male thing. But like how many men just want to be in charge of something, even if it's at the expense of allowing someone their freedom? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like that character sometimes comes off, like you're saying, he kind of under, undermines her, undercuts everything that she does in some ways. Because it's, it's, it's kind of like, I support you, but only under my own guidelines, under my own thoughts of how it, I should support you. You know what I mean? Like, like, there's always those people that say they have someone's back but they only want to have that person's back the way that they, they, they deem right, you know? Exactly. And I, I think that that character is, is very much like that at times. Yeah. You, Terry, go ahead. I'm, I'm kind of contemplating, Um, (laughs) you know, in terms of, I, I completely, uh, I, I know he comes across that way to me too, but also it's, it's in the scenes where, you know, she tells him, you know, she's going to die and she wants him to, to kill her. And that's when he makes the pact, right? About, you know, when this is over. And I just, I feel like he spends a lot of his time trying to give hope to all of the people that that's just in his nature. Mm-hmm. Where even at the very end, when she's like, I'm going to stay down here with it. He's like, no, you got to You got to go on. You got to see this till the end. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't, I don't necessarily see it as, as, as someone that's trying to steal her thunder so much as like, mm-hmm trying to give her that kind of that kind of hope that he has yeah. spent mm-hmm. most of the movie doing like you know he, he gives the beautiful speech when they're cremating newt and uh and hicks about like you know they won't know the grief that's left behind that for us and there's always a new beginning there's always a new life um he he spends most of the movie kind of espousing this this belief so his move at the end when he's like no you got to see this to the end just feels so completely in his wheelhouse and his, in his character of trying to mm-hmm. boost everyone up yeah. that I think he, even in this moment of when we know she's fucked, she knows she's fucked. He's still trying to grab onto that, that hope. And I think that's what makes me really appreciate his character more as an adult than mm-hmm. maybe I did originally. No, I like that. I like that a lot. That's cool. Do you think in some ways it's trying to rectify uh, for his his the sins that he did that led him there. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah, I think uh, his whole that, life revolves around that. Yeah, it's it's someone that came from uh, an existence that maybe wasn't the best one and made a lot of mistakes, and so he kind of lives his life trying to like constantly fix that. And and you know, I can see it that way too. The whole movie is deals with this idea of sin and salvation. Um, I mean, you have the Christian allegory of 
of God returning to the earth or Christ returning to the earth, like descending back from heaven to, you know, save the world again. And we have this in the idea of the rapture or of judgment day. And you see that here where Ripley is literally shoots down from the sky, but instead of carrying salvation with her, she's carrying what the prisoners refer to as the dragon. Mm -hmm. Like they don't refer to it as a, alien or a xenomorph or it's scientific by scientific terms but they actually you know refer to the monster in kind of mythical terms as the dragon and this idea that salvation is not coming but actual hell is being going to be unleashed on the persons of this planet see that's that's what i like about the assembly cut more than the theatrical is that the character of Gallic, you know, in, in the theatrical cut, you just kind of, you kind of just think he's kind of crazy. You know what I mean? Like, whereas in the assembly cut, like he has, he's convinced that, like you said, this thing is, is, it's kind of like, is mystical, you know, it's like a, like a, like a superior kind of uh, species or something like that, you know? Yeah. And it almost becomes a, a religious thing for like deity. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, to where like a... he frees it, you know? Yes, it's a bit of a Renfield complex, which I love. I, mm-hmm. That's one of those tropes I'm just a sucker for in all of its forms. Mm-hmm. When someone is that... worshipping the monster, I feel it always adds an extra mm-hmm. interesting element to it. Go ahead. I, I just, I do wish that we had gotten a little bit more of, of his character um, because, you know, even with the assembly cut, I feel like there's so much missing in terms of his motivation for it because he just you know he's there he gets locked up and then he immediately just snaps on it well and i I guess it's probably already been there from the beginning it's just i don't feel like we get to see his journey of of releasing the creature and i I, even in the assembly cut it feels a little bit like okay well we have it locked we need to find a way to to unlock it now Mm -hmm. um and i i feel like that if if fincher probably had more say in the matter that it would have been even much more of a textually interesting character than we already get. I, I, I think that it's interesting that these days it seems to be like a really huge thing going around where like we kind of uh, not expect, but we kind of want to see every cut of what should have been, you know, like, like <laughs> I, dude, I'm right there with you. I would love the Fincher's vision for this movie because even the assembly cut isn't the Fincher cut. You know, right? Like, I would right. love to see that. I mean, I would love to see you know the director's cut of the Crow City of Angels, which is another movie that I'll defend nonstop. I love that movie so much. You know, but at this at the same time, it's like we get you know the Snyder cut, or uh, you know, I'm not trying to piss off anyone that likes like <laughs> Curse, but like <laughs> the Craving cut. It's like to, to be Ryan honest, Larson. like like to be honest, I don't want to see a. a, a, a I don't want to see an awful movie be turned into a bad movie, you know, like some things are just doomed, you know, but like, I I feel like Alien 3 is a movie that had such a crazy history with production that you get one of the most visionary directors around his first go around. And to be honest, I would love to see what his vision was because he did have that screening, you know, he did, he did turn in a cut that was what he did you know, what he wanted. Yeah, it was like and, three hours long, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, and they were like, hell no, we're reshooting like 20, 30, 40% of this movie. And, you know, good luck. You know, like, you know, go, go mess with going to the head in a box. You know? Again, just how <laughs> every movie should end. Right. <laughs> the Alien 3 would have been better if the end, Gwyneth Paltrow's head burst out of her chest. And then it's... <laughs> with that scented <laughs> candle. 
Yeah. Oh God. But Dude. what I'm saying is like, 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 it it it's, comes off kind of hypocritical uh, to myself. Like sometimes I'm a hypocrite that like I want to see the director's cut of Aliens. You know, I want to see the director's cut of Crowseed of Angels. You know, I, I don't care about a lot of the other ones, but a lot of people. It's like I I wonder if there's going to be a time where like we're just going to get every single thing we want because that's what we demand. You know, it seems like that's where the the, that's the plateau that we're all heading for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you see a lot of things uh, that are happening right now in the movie industry that happened in the video game industry a bit ago. I mean, there was such a fan outcry over um, uh, Bioware's uh, Mass Effect 3 ending and the mm-hmm. fact that they people felt they were entitled to a different ending. And mm-hmm. so then because of that pressure, they went out and redid a whole other ending to add on to it. It's like, at what point do we accept something, whether it's good or bad, as 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 art? Vice going back and painting over it. I totally. I think that there is definitely a a thing to say about that. But then I also think that you know, if it's the director's vision and he doesn't get to incorporate it, that would be sort of like Mozart, you know, trying to compose a symphony and someone saying, "Oh, you need a to put a bass drop here," you know. <laughs> and so then that's what that's what gets like released and it's not his his vision i so i i'm i'm kind of it's it's a a nuanced um discussion that, for sure that okay. like, how do you see the view of the director overall like there's also this view of director not also just there are some that are creative visionaries but there's yes. also this idea of the director is kind of like a manager a, a manager in some ways and that you have like each of your performers putting their own spin or their own interpretation and backstory and motivations into the character. There is the way that the composers um, view the material and will also um, see how they want to kind of like steer emotions through the music they choose to compose for the film. Um, there are the effects persons that look at the material as, of course, your writers who are the ones that are coming up with the content and your director's job is to not necessarily just say, well, it's only my vision, but how do you incorporate all of these moving parts into a movie that's workable? And you see in cases where like George Lucas, and I'm going to say the Wachowski sisters as well with the two follow-ups to The Matrix. George Lucas, after the original trilogy, was basically given carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. And because he no longer had anyone that was willing to say to him, you know, George, this maybe is not the best idea we got pure unfiltered Lucas and that there's good with that. And there's bad with that. There's incredible world building and imagination, but there's also really bad dialogue and this feeling that maybe George has never had an actual conversation with another human being <laughs> and understands how conversations work. Um, wow, that is great. Do you know? And it's funny. I went back and rewatched the sequel trilogy, the um, prequel trilogy with my daughter and she loved it. And she loved Jar Jar Binks from the get go. So she was grounded. Um, no, but, she, but it made me understand <laughs> that like how those movies are for her, her and kids, not necessarily me. Well, and, there's a great story in those three movies, but it just needed someone to say, we got to rein it in. The Wachowskis with The Matrix, I love the first Matrix movie. They're allowed to do whatever they want in the following two movies, and they both, movies, both <laughs> movies suffer for it. Well, I, I think that it's, there's so many factors that go into these things, you know? Like, as fans, people like, don't realize that a lot of these experiences were traumatic and awful. Yep. 
Like David Fincher doesn't yeah. want to fuck around with Alien Three. To be no, honest. he doesn't. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like not everybody He's is Ridley Scott, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, everyone, you know, no, everyone's not Ridley Scott. You know, like mm. Ridley Scott came out with like what five versions of Blade Runner, and while Blade Runner is, so in my far. opinion, the greatest sci-fi movie of all time. Like, at what point do you say, dude, relax. Mm -hmm. What you did was good. You know what I mean? Like, how many... Uh, really, Scott's notorious for that. You know what I mean? Like, I, I can't think of a single movie where he didn't go back at one point. But, like, it, with Alien 3, like, there's, there's that struggle of wanting to see what could have been, but also, like, coming to the terms of, we got what we got, and I appreciate it. I, I love it. And, you know, maybe what could have been would have been better, but it's not. You know what I mean? And I, I think the assembly cut is as close as we're going to get to what we wanted to see and what David Fincher wanted us to see. Yeah. And part of me hates to side with the studio at all. But uh, when it comes to that theatrical cut, I, I will admit that I watch the theatrical cut more often because mm -hmm. it's shorter. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes movies just need to have a shorter length. I'm of the mindset that a movie a either needs to be 85 minutes long or three hours. And there's like no in between for me. Like when I pop in a movie and it's an hour, 36 minutes, I'm like, this is, you could have easily <laughs> found six minutes to cut out of this. Um, God, but I'll, that should be on your tombstone. Just, oh, on my tomb, I already know it's on my tombstone. I am putting the words avenge me on my tombstone. It's basically what is going. But I, I do, I mean, like being a little facetious, but I really do believe like either give me 90 minutes or give me three hours. Don't give me like two hours. And it's, oh, and you know, know what? Don't weird give me. thing, but no, no, it's not. I'm right there with you at the same time. Like there's, there's, there's directors that I trust with every, whatever length, but even lately I've been like, what the hell is wrong with you? Mm -hmm. Like I'm reading about Ari Aster's next movie being a four hour, <laughs> hour movie. Like mm. I do not <laughs> want to, you know what I mean? Like I'm still in counseling from the first two. Like I don't need <laughs> comedy or not. I don't need four hours of something. Like, yeah. you know, dude, like I'm not trying to diss people that are into that, but like, what the hell? I just feel like he's like, it'll be a nightmare comedy. And I just feel like, I know we're going way off track here and I'll try to bring it back in in a minute, but I feel like Ari Aster's version of a comedy is going to be that time. Like he watches dad smear himself with honey. So bees would sting him. And then his sister died of surprise leukemia. <laughs> like that's his idea of comedy. <laughs> basically, oh, oh we had some, we had oh, some, boy. we had some chucks, you know? Okay. Nat. I do have to ask you now, and this, this does involve Alien 3, uh, and I'm, I'm about 95% sure you'll say yes. Have you read the Alan Dean Foster novelization? Yes. Okay, what, uh, what is the big difference? Like, is it closer to either one of these cuts? Um, I think it's closer to the assembly cut, just because I think a lot of that stuff wasn't cut out by the time mm -hmm. he was given it. But honestly, it's the closest thing it's the closest one of the Alan Dean Foster books resembles the movie because he hated it. So it was really just a job for him. So I don't think he gave half a crap. So it really is pretty much largely the movie. Like there's some really good stuff in there, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think he put as much into it as the first two. Makes sense. We haven't even touched on um, Charles Dance in this. Band is he in this reason. movie? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, so. <laughs> And it's funny because this is the first 
of the Alien movies that allows Ripley some sexual agency. Definitely portrayed as, like, you know, I think pretty much everyone in Alien is written as, as androgynous overall, or at the very least, they're all presented as masculine, if you want to be. And in Aliens, there is this idea of the nuclear family, but Hicks and Ripley, although there might be some mutual attraction there, never consummate. And here... Ripley, I think what's really interesting is she doesn't use her sexuality because of this great action to Clemens, but she uses it because like he's getting too close to the, he's learning too much about her and she's not comfortable of revealing that real emotional part of herself. So she basically offers herself physically to him, essentially to get him to shut up is the way I, I read into that. And I find that like, really fascinating i i love the character of clemens like my whole joke about is he in this movie i was just kidding like i i, I love charles dance in general like he's such a good actor and i think clemens he's one of the most i think nuanced characters in the, in the film mm-hmm. like there's a lot going on and I, I mean i would have loved to see another 10 15 minutes just devoted to his character because it's yeah. it's interesting because it's the first time like you said mike it's the first time where we kind of see that side of ripley mm-hmm. you know she kind of uses that to kind of sway him away and I, I think the reaction that he gives is, is really interesting. I, I've always found that incredibly interesting. I love that character so much. Mm-hmm. I, I love his, uh, you know, his do you still trust me with needle speech moments mm-hmm. before his death. Mm-hmm. And I especially love that he could leave. <laughs> I love that he has, you know, he was there, he stayed on because he had nowhere else to go. Well, no one else would have him. Yeah. Exactly. And I guess that to I to take that further, do you see him staying as him wanting to kind of further atone for um, what he felt he was guilty of versus being pragmatic in saying, if I leave, who's going to have me? Yeah, I, I, I literally think that, you know, one, he obviously had no idea what to do with himself being there so long. Two, I mean, his he didn't have a career. He, he literally he physically like, he literally couldn't go. Mm-hmm. anywhere he couldn't do his job he there's you know it is such a great to have one character to show what time served actually looks like in this place which mm-hmm. is your sentence may be up but you're here forever because there is nowhere else for you and that's a powerful statement on prison culture as it is and this yes. idea that we still wrestle with today where is incarceration supposed to be purely punitive? Are we forgetting about the rehabilitation aspect of what of what prison is supposed to be? Like the idea is once you serve your time, you're supposed to be able to go back out and earn a living like you once did and be accepted back into society like you've literally, you've done your time and you're to be rehabilitated, but we still look at it more as like punishment more than anything else. Right, right. And I find what's especially interesting in this movie because they literally dance around the subject of what Clemens did wrong. Like he won't talk about it and it's talked in these very hushed tones. And when you're led to believe it's this really terrible thing and what's revealed is basically because of his addiction, other people suffer. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that the person we're supposed to think is the worst of the worst is an addict overall and how we look at that through the lens of criminality versus compassion. So I went out and I got more than a little drunk. Then I 
got called back. Boiler had blown on a fuel plant and there were 30 casualties. And 11 of them died. Not as a result of the accident, but because I prescribed the wrong dosage of painkiller. And I got seven years in prison and my license reduced to a 3C. At least I got off the morphine. I think I was let off lightly. Did you serve your time here? I got to know this motley crew quite well. So when they stayed, I stayed. Nobody else would employ me. So, do you still trust me with a needle? Well, you, you I mean, even... Uh, just very briefly, we look at the statistics of uh, prisoners who, once they're released, become repeat offenders. And to be honest, I don't think that it, that's because they all just get out and want to like have, do crimes. Mm -hmm. I think it's because we're, they re they're released into this world that, like you said, they're supposed to they're they're supposed to be able to resume mm -hmm. a normal life, but they're not. Yep. It's it's impossible to even uh, to even think or attempt to say that these people can live normal lives once they've been in prison, you know? And I think the rehabilitation aspect of it needs to be addressed and needs to be a priority. And when it comes to this movie and that character, I, I do think a lot of it is, is not only atonement for what he's done, that I think that in a lot of ways, he feels so guilty that by staying there, it's kind of his penance for what he's done, you know? And I, 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 I love that character because he's so conflicted and he's so damaged by what he feels he's 100% to blame for that he tries. He stays there not only because there is no life outside of this place. He will never be able to go back to that life. But I also feel there's like a self-hatred and guilt in that character that really speaks volumes. Well, I also kind of, to go back to um, a kind of more queer reading of this, mm -hmm. he's, he's a doctor who's taking care of people that no one else will. Mm -hmm. um, everyone views them as the dregs of, of society. And if he leaves, who else is going to take care of them? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, it's something that happened a lot in, in the 80s in particular, dealing with, with again, the, the, not to go back to it, but the, the AIDS crisis, where you had doctors that were, were doing it because they felt that there was no one else that would do it. Um, and he sees them not as you know, dregs of society, but as actual people. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what makes his character for me so intriguing. Um, yeah. yeah. Agreed. No, that's a really wonderful reading of it as well. Like that's a very, I think, charitable reading of, of it as well. And if someone who feels this real sense of duty to serve his fellow men overall. Well, I mean, we, we talk about how this film is very nihilistic and it is, it is, it's a very cynical, dark, bleak movie. But at the same time, I think readings like that one, and there's so much that, I mean, it's kind of that glimmer of hope that I was talking about. This film is very much characters who people look down on like they're nothing. And they're kind of their own saviors and the saviors for each other. You know, like uh, Clemens, you know, Charles Dance's character, like, like Terry said, he's very much taking care of the people that no one else would. Or Charles Dutton's character. He's very much trying to be the hope that none of them even see in themselves. And I, yeah. I think that those are little shades of hope, little shades of humanity 
that I, I think maybe get overlooked in this movie a lot. Yeah. We feel I'm also now doubly fascinated by the fact that Clive Barker turned this film down, considering <laughs> I was, know he was writing his novel about the AIDS crisis, Sacrament, at the exact same time. I, I even like just thinking of how many great directors this movie went through, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not saying Clive Barker and Rennie Harlan are the same kind of directors, <laughs> but, like, the possibilities, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, but it, would, a Rennie, would a Rennie Harlan be able to, like, tap into the thematic depth of the story? Not at all. We, oh, we would have had, we no. had Aliens 2.0. Basically, you would have had, like, if the alien goes over 60 miles an hour, the whole planet blows up now um, I, let, let's be fair the I, the dream master is my favorite nightmare oh Street dude sequel. i i love rennie harlan <laughs> no, i'm no, just is, joking around i know no, we I'm all have kidding. our strings like just like i don't think like david fincher you know could do ghostbusters do you know what i mean yeah. like everybody has their wheelhouse of, you know <laughs> things that they're good at um, oh but that color palette would be great in ghostbusters oh my god <laughs> <laughs> I want to see a David Fincher Ghostbuster movie now. So like, bad. I don't want to see like Ari Aster reboot the airplane series because it would be Everybody two hours of right at the beginning. it would be two hours of like airplanes like smashing into the ground, and then oh, it would be built as yeah. you know. Ari Aster's airplane. The entire movie would be the sick girl, and everything else is happening. <laughs> uh, that would be you know. I mean, we all have our wheelhouse overall. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about the use of religion in this movie and this idea. Do we feel that, and I guess a lot of it will depend on our own interpretation of of religion and spirituality, but is religion used with these prisoners as a means to an end and something to give them hope? Or do they feel like it's, do you feel like they're deeply Ooh. spiritual people or does it become something It's like, let's just feed them this pablum at this point um, because we have to give them something. I think that it's a combination of two things. I I think that the intention was to just feed them this, you know, thing, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think it backfired. I think it backfired because these people have nothing. They have no hope. They have nothing but that set of beliefs to keep them going. I think, like, initially it was intended just to, like, put that on them. But I, I think that they used that to get by and to believe in something. And I, I think that's great. I absolutely agree. I think on the prison's part, it's obviously cynical because larger business entities are never the good guy in the Alien series. But uh, but I think I, I never really question that the prisoners are as spiritual as they appear to be. In mm-hmm. the- How about you, Terry? Yeah, I, I guess I've never really thought of, to be honest. Um, yeah, I... I, I I can't. I can't really disagree with any of your guys' readings. With I'm fascinated by how this movie examines our end. It examines what it means to die, but it never examines: is there something after this, or do we just blink out? It never really even asks that question in any of the movies. Overall, it just is like it's presented. Hmm. It's presented as just life is some sort of matter of fact thing. And we're not so much interested, at least in the original trilogy, and especially in Resurrection, as whether or not there's something larger than ourselves out there. And I think that's going to be a fascinating topic of discussion when we get into Prometheus and Covenant, where I feel yeah. like Ridley Scott is very much trying to explore those topics. But what you have here is this idea of religion 
I'm not a fan of organized religion, so maybe it's better to say that spirituality being a way to tie persons in that are from different walks of life, different backgrounds, and Christianity in its truest sense of being is what is proposed as of a religion that really looks at those that are on the margins of society, that have been left behind, that are on the edges, and mm-hmm. it's supposed to be a way to bond them and to unite them and to lift them up. I mean, one of, as one of the parables say, it's easier for um, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. Um, and this idea that there is a place for the poor of society that have been forgotten—that's what Christianity is supposed to be at its core. Um, mm-hmm. But like many institutions, it's been morphed and perverted yes twisted and perverted into something else completely so i find like it almost uplifting in a way that the way the prisoners of this movie use religion um to help themselves get through it although you do see some characters that given the first opportunity kind of forget about the teachings or the tenets of their religion and immediately become a little bit despicable. Yeah. Well, I think that speaks on uh, most religions, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there, there are people that actively find uh, fulfillment in those. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just profoundly beautiful, you know, but then there's people like my dad who growing mm-hmm. up, he would go to church, you know, multiple times a week. And, you know, Saturday night, the day before going to church, would stay up late like, watching porn and <laughs> other stuff. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I think every religion has those people that kind of distort what it's about. And and to be honest, not to make this like a Christianity thing, because I, I definitely don't follow those belief systems. But the message, like you said, it is it is for those people that are kind of like looked down on. That's what Christianity was built on. And Christianity, the whole message of it is love, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think that that does get distorted. And, but I do think it is a genuine belief system in this movie. And I, I think, like I said, I, I think it's that little glimmer of hope of, of I'm in here probably for the rest of my life. I, I, need, I want to believe in something, you know, maybe not just myself, but I want to believe in something greater mm-hmm. than I am. Excellent. Well said. And I guess I want to end on that the last, unless there's more to discuss, I want to briefly touch on this idea of Ripley's arc through these three movies and Ripley as a survivor in because she's very uh, a, a final girl in a very much a very different vein that I think you see in most horror movies where she's given the space throughout three movies to carry a franchise and to really wrestle with her trauma there's a very powerful moment where she thinks she's confronting the alien and she says to it like I've been you've been in my life for so long I don't remember what it's like Don't be afraid. I'm part of the family.
been in my life so long. I can't remember anything else. Now do something for me. It's easy. Just... Just do what you do. I love that line. I can't, yeah, that's my favorite moment in the franchise, actually. Yes. And touches into something I, I also really want to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, that's why, I mean, she does see the alien, but then, you know, the alien moves. But it that's my favorite moment. I love that this movie allows us to have that. But it's also my favorite thing about this movie. Overall, mm-hmm. my very favorite thing about Alien 3, which we have not touched on yet, is the fact that the alien will not kill her. Mm-hmm. Because I think that is a great commentary on what it means to be a survivor mm-hmm. in a horror movie, which is a, it's not about saving yourself. It's about the fact that you want to save everyone around you and you can't. Yeah. And that's true of, you know, Nancy and Alice and the Elm Street movies mm-hmm. of, you know, Sydney and Scream for sure. Mm-hmm. Andre Toulon, Puppet Master, Laurie Strode. It's true of every survivor in horror. It's the, the thing that comes that just connects mm-hmm. this thing overall. And this is a great way to explore that by literally having the villain not be interested, will be interested, but not mm-hmm. in a threatening way in the hero at all. Mm-hmm. We, we talked a little bit about this idea of save, trying to save others or of trauma not really caring who you are when we talked about Halloween 2018, that... Trauma doesn't care who you are. It's going to affect you, but it, even if it, 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 it's going to affect you whether you want it to or not, but it's not personal. Um, like in that, in the Halloween series, like Michael doesn't care who Laurie Strode is in the end. He doesn't even remember. And very much here, like the alien is interested in keeping Ripley around because it has something, she has something that it wants. Like it senses Mm -hmm. the queen inside her. And I think we see that with abusers so often in that like, wouldn't it just be easier to let this person go, to cut them out of your life instead of continuing to abuse them. But at the end, what the abuser, the abuser gets off on dealing out that abuse at the end, like it's a way of showing control. It's a way of showing power over someone. And Ripley is very much in this movie fighting against that power, whether it's the company or, you know, whether it's this alien that is decided to keep her around at least as long as it takes her it to get its queen. Yeah. And I, I love that that is just the thing that she would feel insulted by mm-hmm. the most after being through this twice, that this thing, not only that it, it doesn't see her as a, a threat, it doesn't attack her but that it you know it is nurturing her she hates the mm-hmm. fact that it is even you know it would even go out of its way to take care of her mm-hmm. this the, the thing she has grown to hate so much in her life the thing that defines her life wants to keep her alive and that is so you know, there's a reason that she would be so angered and mm-hmm. humiliated by that fun this idea mm-hmm. of a of a Final girl, though. I mean, we do have a movie in which she finally has sex and she dies. True. Very true. There's a trope, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know May- if it's quite the same. If it's, I know. I'm have, just being... I, I have sex, you know, 
had sex, killed myself. It's a little <laughs> yeah. different. I, I'm just you know, being maybe, maybe those Wes Craven rules were right. Uh, no, but like what Mike was saying about kind of the stuff we touched on with the Halloween series, how trauma doesn't care. I, I think that those are the most compelling stories, you know, and I think Ripley, Ripley's story is no different, you know, and I, I love, I love seeing her arc throughout the three films, you know, the, the, the first film, she's kind of, uh, you know, kind of a nobody. And I, I don't mean that like I felt this way. I just meant the way that she's kind of portrayed at first. She's just kind of one of them. And she's the one that takes ownership at the end and does that. And the second film is very much about her going to address that stuff. You know, she wants to address it. And the third film, I feel like she comes to the understanding that, you know what, this isn't what I want. And I hate it with a passion, but it's my cross to bear. And I'm going to take care of it the way that I, I want to take care of it. You know, I, I, I'm going out on my own terms. I'm confronting this trauma. I'm confronting this thing that's on my shoulders 24-7 for most of my life, more of my life than it has it been. You know what? And I'm going, I'm going to address it the way that I want to do. And I think that's – I'm not like pro-suicide, but at the same time, like that's her decision to make. And she makes the decision that this is how I'm going to get rid of this, this, this cross that I've had to bear. And this is how I'm going to get rid of this trauma. And, and I think it's a really good arc for the character. Agreed. Absolutely. I think of any, I can't think of a character in a horror franchise, including Halloween, where a character has like a three, a three movie story like this, where you really do get a complete arc from beginning to end of a character that has this much agency overall. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I speak on what we said really quickly about earlier about kind of this film definitely not feeling like an ensemble piece. You know, it's very much Ripley's thing. I feel like the third part of story of her really kind of needed to be that. It really needed to be less about all the other people dealing with it, even though all you know, the prisoners definitely do. Uh, I do feel like this was the story that needed to be told about Ripley finally confronting and defeating those those demons you know the the, the mm-hmm. alien so gentlemen where does alien 3 sit in the franchise for each of you uh i i think prometheus is the best alien film no, i was joking mm-hmm. uh no i do love that movie but uh to be honest uh for me alien 3 is right behind alien like i i like aliens so much but it's 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 third place for me uh alien 3 has always been my number two Mm-hmm. I love this franchise so much that as much as I adore this movie, it's still third for mm-hmm. me. And does it go one, two, and three for you? Yep. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I I think this is pro- it, it's yeah, it's probably my third one as well. Um, I mm-hmm. just Alien and Aliens just for me, it, they're they're always neck and neck in terms of which one I like more. Um, mm-hmm. And as much as I find that this movie is probably more thematically rich than either of them, or even both of them combined is in terms of the themes. I, I don't, I don't like it as much. I would much rather go watch alien or aliens, to be honest. For me, I don't think anything tops alien um, because I, I am hard pressed to think of a movie that has done such an incredible job of, of world building and creating, creating this sense of wonder. Um, and creating this sense of vastness overall that I don't think any of the other movies really kind of come close to doing overall. Um, Covenant 
in some ways comes close just because you see a world so much like our own that's been kind of perverted in in some ways um where you have like this sense of like paradise lost but that first aliens world building to me is just so astonishing um I might, you know, depending on my mood, might put this just ahead of Alien, just because I think it mirrors the tone of that first movie overall and because of the themes that it explores. But that being said, it's really hard watching Aliens, which is this gung-ho action movie, and it's so much goddamn fun, and then doing a complete 180 from that and having this, like, I mean, this is really, like, a meditative movie overall. Like, it's not something you're not going to just throw this on when you're in the mood for some lighthearted entertainment. Like this is a movie that is, I think very much of that early nineties kind of grunge punk era overall. It really reflects the, I really think it reflects that time overall. So it sits kind of squarely in the middle for me. I might even put, I'm a big fan of doing alien and then Prometheus right after. Mm, I think those two movies mirror each other so well, but. Um, given how difficult this movie was to make, it is stunning to me that it is cohesive and as rich as it is. Oh, I agree 100%, man. So do we have any last words at Alien 3, or are we good? I think I'm good. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's just, you know, yeah, the same. movie is great excellent. despite its best efforts. Yes, excellent. So um, we were just talking briefly, and it'll be edited out a little bit, um I'll, I'll speak for like 30 seconds on it this really weird thing right now where like as we're recording here i'm perusing the news in twitter and looking through all my tabs and i see like senator mitt romney marching in a black lives matter parade um and it's easy to laugh and write it off as a photo op um but i think it speaks of this idea that this movement right now that the activism that we're seeing that this idea that like enough is enough that we saw it with sexual harassment and times up um and what we're seeing with black lives matter right now um it transcends politics or it should transcend politics and it should transcend what side of the aisle that you sit on and it shouldn't be a political matter but this idea that it's a human right and matter of like decency matters so um i'll say to hopefully everyone out there if you're fighting the fight please make sure that you're taking care of yourself it's okay to take an afternoon to read a book or listen to music or watch movies to give yourself a rest because otherwise you'll burn yourself out very quickly so please make sure you're taking care of yourself and for some suggested reading and listening terry what do you have coming up on scarred for life what a segue what a fucking segue (laughs) Yeah, it was <laughs> kind of like um, you disarmed me. I wasn't expecting such a smooth transition. Uh, so <laughs> when this comes out, our new episode um, will also be live with uh, Dax Ibabin, who is a writer at, at Bloody Disgusting. Mm-hmm. And he um, is bringing the Blair Witch Project to oh, um, and then... Later this month, we are hopefully talking with BJ Colangelo and um, Carla Rossi slash Anthony Hudson, uh, mm-hmm. the who's behind the Gaylords of Dark. Um, Excellent. Yeah, yes. that's what's yes. coming up on Scarred for Life. Mm-hmm. And Nat, what are you working on right now? Um, I have some articles, hopefully coming soon, stuff for uh, Wicked Horror, stuff uh, hopefully for Bloody Disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, so close 
to wrapping up the book now yes. that uh now that uh blade the iron cross is finally coming out this month so i can that dangling chapter i've had for uh over a year can be completed and uh, i can get rolling and uh yeah that's basically basically it as you're wrapping this up do you have other franchises you kind of want to dive in and do the histories of like do you or have you felt like man i've scratched this itch and now i'm kind of um well i had a ton before i wrote the book mm-hmm. uh, but that is you know it's been two years it's a it's a lot of work and it's a mm-hmm. lot of talking to a lot of people and a lot of uh balancing things you don't really take into account before you write a book like this a lot of just a lot of paperwork and stuff mm-hmm. and everything so i've definitely thought about it i may have even written another book proposal but i'm not jumping into a okay. book like this immediately after this one so you're taking a break well i mean i'm still writing <laughs> Right. Okay. I, I don't think Nat, I don't think Nat ever sleeps. No. <laughs> kind of like the Stephen King of horror journalism, where yeah. like, in his sleep he bangs out three thousand words. And... You're, you know, it's also a thing that I do. Where as soon as I say something like that, mm-hmm. the next day I'll be like driven by the idea for this next like hundred thousand word thing. Do it. Like completely negating everything I said mm-hmm. just because I said it. So that's my own <laughs> issue. And for our listeners who are just tuning in for the first time, hi, welcome. Um, where can they find uh, Nat and Terry Worth? And can they find you on the socials? Uh, follow me uh, on Twitter at Nat Bremer. That's, that's where all the good stuff mm-hmm. is. Uh, or uh, Tumblr, Brundlefly for a White Guy, if that's still active. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What a great, perfect, what a great title. Perfect. <laughs> um, Carry on by yourself. Um, <laughs> thanks a lot, Nat. Um, <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at uh, at Gailey Dreadful. Um, I also just recently created an Instagram account. I don't know what I'm doing there, but it's there if you want to follow it. Otherwise, uh, our podcast is at at Scarred Podcast on Twitter. Right. Yeah, that's that's where you could. And if listeners wanted to drop you off a casserole or something, what's the home address? <laughs> I'm kidding. Don't, don't, don't give that. Jerry, my friend, what do you have that you're working on? Uh, I, I mean, half of me feels guilty for talking about anything I'm working on during these times. But uh, uh, Mike and I were both on guests on this podcast that is coming out pretty soon. The podcast is out, but our episode it's called I Do Movies Badly. Mm-hmm. And we talked about the movies of Benson and Moorhead which, oh God, it was so much fun doing that show. Uh, That and uh, a couple articles I I wrote that I'm actually really proud of came out uh, this this past week. One of them at Hawk Creek Horror about uh, Edward Scissorhands and how much that movie really moved me as a kid. And another one about, uh, another one on Dread Central kind kind of about coming to terms with a religious upbringing and realizing you kind of don't believe in that, but finding spirituality through a lot of horror films and stuff. So both of those are out. Uh, I have a, quite a few things in the works as far as articles and that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. And I mean, like always, Jerry is just okay. I mean, that's mm-hmm. pretty much where to find me. So we, um, for myself, you can find us over at Pod and Pendulum, um, over on Twitter, on Facebook, just search Pod and the Pendulum. We have a small Facebook group over there. 
Uh, I'll have a new show. It looks like we're going to be releasing it in July uh, called Psychoanalysis, which is a horror therapy podcast with Jen from The Horror Virgin and Lara from The Losers Club. Um, we've recorded two shows and we have another one we're recording. We're trying to get a few shows kind of in the proverbial can before we release the uh, series. And that is going to be a hell of a lot of fun. Um, by the time this is out and you're listening to it, Jerry and I are going to be planning our first ever premium episode. Uh, we're going to be joined by Ryan Larson from Ghastly Grinning uh, in order to uh, bring you the movie Cursed, which is one of Ryan's uh, favorite movies. Oh, yeah. um, it'll be $2 and every penny that we earn from it will go to the Black Lives um, fundraising that have been going on. So our goal is to raise $1,000 um so hopefully that will happen and um until next week we are back next week with alien resurrection which is not so thematically rich um it is a <laughs> very much a joss whedon movie for all the good and not so and good bad. that can be the bad um you know i don't know who i have to fuck to end this podcast but that gives you a little bit of a uh taste for what we have going on <laughs> next week so but it's a fun 90s action sci-fi movie. I think it's oh, better it? than I remember. <laughs> it is. It is. If you took the... I think it, we don't, we'll get into it next week. We've already talked long enough. You know, if you took the alien out of Alien Resurrection, you wouldn't be able to... They have a pretty bad movie, school. They have a pretty bad movie. Why is everybody running around? All right, that'll do, everyone. Thank you so much. <laughs> have a great week. <laughs>